You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. We are really pleased to, today to have with us as a guest on The Zeitgeist, um, Mike Froman, who is the uh, chairman of the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth and also vice chairman um, for strategic growth at MasterCard. Uh, many of you will be familiar with Mike Froman from his time as a United States trade representative, but he also has held uh, other positions in government and in the private sector for, for many years. He worked uh, in, the, in the White House um, under President Clinton's and President Obama's administrations, um, as well as uh, working at Citigroup, among other places. Uh, and we're also joined today by Peter Rashish, Senior Fellow and Director of the Geoeconomics Program at AICGS. Now, we will certainly talk about trade, um, but before we get to that, I wanted to start off with one uh, uh, more general question, um, Mike. And you know, you're probably familiar with a document published about a year ago by the Business Roundtable. It was called A Statement on the Purpose um, of a Corporation. Uh, and it was a, a pretty interesting document about the the differentiation between shareholder capitalism and stakeholder capitalism, essentially. And of course, at our institute, we deal a lot with Germany where the idea of stakeholder capitalism is well entrenched. Uh, and so I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on this debate, which is now growing in the American business community about the role of a corporation. How does that look to you? Well, first of all, thank you for, for having me. Um, and it's a great question, a very timely one. Actually, if you look back a couple of years, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, started in his annual letters urging CEOs to think not just about short-term financial performance, but also about social impact and their, their role in having social impact. The BRT came out with its statement. And I think all companies, wherever they were on this issue, were very much put to the test with COVID, uh, the collapse of, of small business, um, the, uh, and of course, in the United States, the issues around race that emerged over the last uh, over the last several months to me i think it's less an issue of shareholders versus stakeholders than it is an issue of short term versus long term in our view we have a very particular view that it is in our shareholders interest long term that we invest for example in things like financial inclusion and inclusive growth that it's good for the markets in which we operate and when there's an inclusive economy, uh, it will thrive, and we thrive where economies thrive. And similarly, we're very focused on the environment. Uh, we've created something called the Priceless Planet Coalition with a number of other companies committing to plant 100 million trees. Our view is that's important to us because it's important to our customers. It's important to attract and retain the best talent, all of which goes to long-term value. Um, our role with governments and helping governments with their disbursements and their programs to digitize. Again, it's about partnering with them because that is in our long-term interest. So I think the real issue is that, that uh, oftentimes companies have been focused so much on short-term quarterly financial performance that they've lost sight of the importance of investing for long-term value creation. And that's where I think we all need to be focused. Mike, another issue that's uh, facing uh, corporations and also government policymakers right now since the coronavirus is um, 
how, how the U.S. and how companies can best assure resilience in a crisis of their supply chains. For medical products, but also it seems the debate is getting broader about um, also about goods that have something to do with national security. Um, how do you see this debate? Do you think bringing home um, production is, is the answer or part of the answer? And if not, uh, what do you think that you at the U.S. And, and sort of like-minded governments like Germany and others in Europe can do to balance concerns about prosperity with security uh, looking at supply chains? So there, there is this debate over supply chains and whether uh, they should be reordered and reviewed. Oftentimes it's really about China and our dependence on China as a producer and as a provider of inputs into our supply chains. And I think actually companies were looking at their supply chains and particularly their dependence on China um, uh, for many years now, partly because the costs in China were increasing at about 20% a year. Then you had the U.S.-China trade tensions uh, in, with the Trump administration, and that introduced more uncertainty as to what products might be subject to tariffs. And then you had COVID, which in this case, as in many other issues, I think accelerated trends that were already underway. So whether or not companies bring back their supply chain to their own country, full onshoring, or whether they focus more on creating redundancy, resilience, uh, perhaps more regional supply chains, things closer to home. My sense is that companies look at supply chains primarily through the lens of operational risk and what's the risk that the supply chain will be interrupted. And in that case, you want to make sure that you've got multiple sources for products, including some perhaps closer to home. In some cases, it may lead to onshoring. My guess is in more cases, it will lead to creating multiple places abroad where products are sourced. You, you mentioned uh, there the challenge from China. That's a big part of that. And of course, you know, the president has launched a tariff war against China and has even mooted the idea of, of, of decoupling the U.S. economy from China. Uh, how do you think the U.S. and its European allies um, can work together so they can coexist with this very large Chinese state capitalist economy if, 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 uh, if, if the U.S. is not, for example, going to decouple from it? Well, I think there's more of a consensus now, certainly across the political spectrum in the U.S., but also between the U.S. and its major trading partners, including in Europe, about the nature of the challenge of integrating an economy as big and as important as China into the, the world's rules-based trading system when it follows a very different set of rules. And so there's more coherence, more, I think, understanding across the Atlantic of what the challenge is. There is difference over, of opinion over the tactics to be used, but I'm hopeful that there, this could be an area of transatlantic collaboration where the U.S., together with its major European partners, together with others, Canada, Japan, major emerging economies who also have concerns about the distortive effects of certain Chinese policies, I would hope that they could come together and have a common view and use their collective influence to try and um, put some pressure on China to address its 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 uh, its policies and and processes. Um, so far, we've sort of gone it alone, largely, um, mostly through the use of tariffs over the last few years. But I would hope that going forward, there could be this could be actually a subject of transatlantic cooperation. Of course, um, 
you know, when we look at trade policy, it's not just China that that's that's a challenge and uh, making things difficult. It's also um, the World Trade Organization, which is, I think, fair to say, in crisis across all three of its its principal functions. Um, you know, when it comes to monitoring or negotiation, some of that has to do with China. But when it comes to dispute settlement, a lot of that has to do with the fact that the Trump administration has blocked appointments um, to the WTO's appellate body. Um, what 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 should the next U.S. administration do to make the WTO great again? You know, I think uh, I think WTO reform and the importance of updating the WTO and addressing some of its challenges is very much uh, on the agenda, not just for the U.S., but for many other countries around the world now. And you've seen in this process of picking a new director general for the WTO, all of the candidates have expressed their commitment to reform the WTO as the first order of business. So I'm optimistic that, uh, that there could be progress on this, particularly around issues like the appellate body, where that's an issue that actually predates the Trump administration. The Obama administration also had concerns about the appellate body exceeding its authority. We didn't veto the appointment of every appellate body member, but we did express our concern in a number of, of different ways. Um, so I think there, is some, there are some real issues, legitimate issues, that need to be addressed there. And I, I'm most optimistic that on the appellate body question, that can be resolved because there's a great deal of interest by China and many of the uh, major emerging economies in seeing the appellate body get back into uh, get back into action. I'm a little less optimistic about the, uh, the ability of negotiating major trade liberalizing rounds among 164 countries. We've really negotiated only one fully multilateral agreement since the WTO was created, and that was the, the trade facilitation agreement back in 2013. Uh, but I am hopeful that the coalitions of the ambitious can come together, further the work towards raising standards and defining rules, particularly for new areas like e-commerce and the digital economy, and then open it up and, and hopefully attract more and more countries who are willing to abide by those rules so that they become closer and closer to a multilateral discipline. And do you think U.S. leadership of that kind of effort you just mentioned is essential for that to have success? I think it is. I think it is. I think, uh, I think certainly other countries are more willing now than they have been to engage in that conversation about WTO reform, but I think it will take the U.S. leadership to really bring the various parties to the table and to get this over the line. Um, Mike, you know, when you were U.S. trade representative, um, you led the U.S. Uh, efforts to negotiate a trade, a transatlantic trade and investment partnership, TTIP, of the European Union. Now, of course, that didn't conclude before the end of the, uh, the, the Obama administration, and the Trump administration has not pursued those talks. Um, but if you look ahead, do you think there's still a rationale for an ambitious uh, US-EU trade deal? You know, we had as a guest um, for a, an AICGS event recently, the Director General for Trade, Sabina Vyond at the European Union, and the topic that came up. Um, uh, won't tell you what she said right away, but because <laughs> I'd be curious to hear your view first. Um, should that be at the top of the US-EU agenda in, in the future, or is it something? I'm not sure the politics are ripe uh, in the EU, let alone the US, for the negotiation of a comprehensive uh, full tr uh, free trade agreement uh, across the Atlantic. I do think there are a number of particular issues 
that we could take on together and that would be important to take on together. You know, I, think, I think the U.S. and the EU could really take on issues around the digital economy and work through some of the very challenging issues that have been there before, but which I think are actually ripe for resolution. For example, I think one can address the legitimate concerns around privacy and protecting the privacy of individuals in a GDPR-compliant way while still maintaining disciplines around the flows of data that allow for the benefits of data analytics to be brought to the table uh, for individuals and for businesses or for medical research or any number of other issues. And at a time when other countries, again, like China or uh, other major emerging economies, may be trying to define rules around the digital economy that are quite adverse to uh, the values and interests of the U.S. and the European Union. I think there is an opportunity for uh, U.S. and Europe to come together and to try and work through and resolve some of those issues uh, and then bring others in and bring others in as well. But that, I think, is one piece of, of a trade agenda. I'm not sure the full TTIP comprehensive free trade agreement is would be at the top of my list right now. One, because there continue to be a lot of issues that are difficult to resolve and are highly politically sensitive, including things like uh, food safety and um, uh, uh, concerns around that. Um, uh, but also because I think the politics in some ways, there needs to be some confidence building between the US and Europe. As we've seen in some of the recent polls, the perception of the United States in Europe right now is far below what it was four years ago. And uh, the distrust of the US is much lower than it was. I think it's very hard to take on a project like TTIP um, at a time when the public is not uh, is not quite there yet. Right. Um, you mentioned the digital economy, and you seem optimistic that that there could be a way to make the sort of the U.S. view and the EU view of privacy work together. Another possible. Um, uh, you know, uh, obstacle to an agreement could be uh, increasing in, an increasing interest that we see in the EU in its own sovereignty, especially its technological sovereignty. You know, they're they're developing their own their own cloud, and 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 they're, they put out some papers on on the digital economy, on on artificial intelligence. Those are still somewhat in early stage, but um, I wonder if we, if if you know the U.S. should be concerned that. Um, greater European tech sovereignty somehow would make it harder to work with the United States on common common rules and principles, for example, vis-a-vis -vis China? Or, or are you, would you also be optimistic that um, that, 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 that could be made to, uh, that could be turned to a source of stronger cooperation across the Atlantic? You know, I, I would prefer that the US and the your EU come together and I should say the UK as well, to look at areas of possible transatlantic collaboration in the technology area, um, rather than technology sovereignty as being used as a, an excuse to put up walls between the EU and, and the United States. Um, I think we share a lot of values. I think, by the way, there's been an evolution in thinking. So when GDPR was first put out there, I think there was a lot of opposition to it. Uh, in the United States, but I think uh, the concerns about privacy in the United States, we see this in California as just one example, have evolved. And, and companies like ours, you know, we've committed to taking the consumer elements of GDPR and applying them globally. 
uh, whether or not they're required. Um, uh, so I think there are, there's been an evolution in the environment that should allow for better collaboration. And I worry that some of the nationalistic tendencies that are behind issues like let's create a localized cloud or let's create technological sovereignty are really at odds with some of the collaboration that could really help advance technological development in Europe as, as well as uh, as well as the United States. So my, my hope would be that there would be more of a focus on what are the legitimate concerns, I use privacy as one example, that need to be addressed, uh, and how can they be addressed in a way that doesn't drive a wedge between the U.S. and Europe, but rather helps bring them together and helps position them to have positive influence on the digital economy more broadly. Right. Um, let me just shift the, uh, to something a, a little different. Um, going back to the public health crisis we're facing, which is also an economic crisis. If you compare now to uh, the period after the global financial crisis, uh, it does seem Germany ha is taking a different tack. Uh, you know, there's a lot of criticism of Germany back then that they weren't stepping up to, in, in the right way uh, to, to really be the leader of a, of a European response to the global financial crisis. Uh, and now we see along with France that Germany really is pushing for more economic and financial solidarity within the EU uh, as a result of the economic fallout of the, of the coronavirus. Um, how do you see that development within the EU, this, for example, with its next-gen recovery plan? Do you think this, this deeper EU economic and financial cooperation is good for the EU, but also is it good for transatlantic cooperation on, on an economic recovery? I think it is. I think uh, you don't hear a reprise of the debate around growth versus austerity that we heard, you know, in 2009, 2010, the, the rush to shut down elements of stimulus that were necessary to get the economy going uh, again. And of course, we're all facing uh, such an unprecedented health and economic crisis that everybody I think is quite uh, focused on using all the tools at their disposal to try to address them. Uh, I think it's also good that, that Europe has come together around uh, the, was it the 750 billion euro uh, stimulus plan uh, to, to help, help the economy get back on track that shows that degree of solidarity that perhaps uh, wasn't as evident in the 2008-2009 uh, period. So I think it's positive both for Europe as it is and also between Europe and the United States. In fact, there hasn't been a lot of coordination among countries. Everyone's sort of been doing their own thing, but all generally in the same direction. And one thing I would hope is that uh, through, whether it's through the G7 or the G20 or other mechanisms, that there can be more work together to ensure that as these stimulus plans, rescue plans are put in place, first of all, that uh, they're being done in a thoughtful way, that we're thinking through what some of the spillover effects are, for example, of, of bailing out various industries or subsidizing various industries. We have some coordinated approach on that so it doesn't become an issue of tension, unnecessary tension between the United States and, and Europe. And when the time comes and, and the economy is back in shape, that that countries can work together, including the emerging economies that will have a very serious uh, debt load to manage to help, uh, to help make sure that, uh, that that process is managed in a collaborative way as well. 
Well, you mentioned the G7 and the G20, and I know you were deeply involved in both of those uh, during the first Obama administration. Um, do you think those those two uh, fora are useful still? I mean, and I know I ask that because uh, there have been some proposals to uh, try to find some other ways to organize cooperation among uh, among like-minded countries, including, for example, the D10, which would kind of expand on the G7 and have a wider group of democratic countries. How, how do you see the the usefulness? Uh, are the G7 and G20 still fit for purpose? Yeah, look, I think it all depends on how much the major countries involved in those processes are willing to invest in them. Uh, they're, they're, they can be useful mechanisms with the right leadership, um, but that doesn't preclude the possibility that there might be other groupings of countries that could come together around various issues um, and be equally, if not more, effective. So uh, to me, they're, they're, they're there, they're off the shelf. There are regular chairmanships that rotate and, and summits that get scheduled. And so if the proper leadership is applied, I think they can be useful mechanisms, but um, but there may well be new forums that are uh, that are also well suited for the current challenges that we face. You may have noticed we have an election coming up uh, in less than a month. Um, there could be some changes. Um, looking at the international economy, um, what would be your number one or number and maybe number two priority for the next administration in ter in terms of this kind of in this terms of global economic cooperation, where do you think really are the, the key areas where there needs to, where there really needs to be progress? Well, look, I think for, uh, and again, I should make clear, I'm not an advisor to the Biden uh, campaign or transition or anything of that sort. So I'm, I'm, I'm speaking only in personal capacity. Uh, I do think there, there is an opportunity for the U.S. to reassert its leadership internationally. And I think it's very much needed. Um, I think a number of European and other countries have, have stepped up in various ways over the last four years to try and fill some of the void, but there really is no substitute for U.S. engagement in a number of these uh, areas. First and foremost, I think it's dealing with the health and the economic crisis, including the issues we were just talking about, making sure there is a concerted and comprehensive approach to getting the economies back on track, um, uh, make, making sure that from a health perspective, that whether it's therapies, diagnostics, or vaccines, that they are both expedited in their developments and, and manufacturing, but also they're distributed in an equitable fashion uh, as well. Um, that's, I think, uh, those are two chief areas. I think climate change is another one where having the U.S. back at the table can try and help get that process back on track. Um, and there are a number of other areas of, in the foreign policy realm where having U.S. involvement, whether it's around uh, human rights or around security issues, around alliances, I think would be very helpful at this point. So uh, there will be no lack of things to, for a new administration if, if Vice President Biden is elected to be focused on. But of course, he's also said, and I think properly so, his focus needs to be initially on the domestic agenda. And one thing I think those of us involved in international affairs need to very much keep in mind is we need to make sure the domestic agenda is as robust as possible because you can't really exercise an international agenda, you know, including around um, uh, developing trade rules and, and engaging with other markets unless you've got the support of the domestic policy. And that means really addressing the issues here 
that are going to be key to maintaining our strength and competitiveness. It's, it's almost like you, you wrote the uh, conclusion and the summary to this conversation in that last sentence, uh, Mike Froman, uh, you know, because we started off talking about global trade dynamics, about the digital economy, about cooperation between the United States and Europe, and also about the role of corporations in society. But uh, I, I think you're absolutely right that the domestic support and understanding for international engagement, those two things have to go hand in hand. And, uh, and so I think those are things for us to keep in mind uh, and for our listeners, uh, uh, I think as well, uh, will appreciate the importance of the domestic uh, agenda uh, and its interconnectedness. So thank you so much for being our guest today. Uh, we really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for having me. So Mike Froman, um, uh, Ambassador Froman, who was U.S. Trade Representative in the Obama administration and now is the chairman of the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth. Thanks for being our guest on The Zeitgeist, and we will look forward to seeing uh, and hearing uh, from all of you and being with you next time. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören!